Yeah, we actually got a royalty check. We got paid money for our for the airplay of right. the of the the songs. And, How much uh, was it? I framed mine as eight dollars and sixty three cents. Well, that's a lot of money in Holland. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to another Something in the Water podcast. I'm Uncle Dave Griffin. This is Mr. Sean Clark, Justin Mercer back here from Caution Light Media, and our guest, Billy Ray Heron from Waycross, Georgia. Um, Billy Ray Heron is the owner of Hickory Wind Music Store. He is the uh, renowned uh, historian on Graham Parsons' uh, early childhood life spent in Waycross, Georgia. And uh, he and I have got a lot of stories to talk about, but uh, we're glad to have you, Ray. 67 years of them here. <laughs> <laughs> um, First time I ever saw Dave, he was uh, sitting on the rail fence in his front yard, and all the boys that year had got uh, cowboy shirts with little rhinestones. <laughs> and I walked up, and Gary said, "That's my little brother Dave over there. That's my first meeting of you." Well, that was uh, that had to be before Tripoli. And, yeah, uh, it would have been. Yeah, the Arabs stole my cowboy suit over in Tripoli, but thank God you didn't steal my cowboy <laughs> shirt in Waycross. <laughs> Actually, uh, we grew up on the same road together, Mount Pleasant Road in Waycross, uh, which we uh, ended up being called Dog Hill. Yeah. So. Um, Everybody had a dog. There were a lot of dogs on Dog yeah. Hill. Yeah. You uh, grew up across the street from me. Yeah. And uh, we had a lot of uh, childhood memories there growing up together with all of our neighbors and friends. We played a lot of yeah. sports in James's backyard. James Cox's backyard was our... <laughs> gathering because <laughs> yeah. it was a pasture and uh as he called it and all our sports events went on back there and all our music we listened to and uh i started playing guitar after the beatles <clears throat> at sullivan's show i was one of those kids that went out pretty quick and learned to play guitar and so i played around for a few years and played in a couple of bands and then Dave was already playing piano, so he already had some musical I had knowledge. About, I had about... And he was playing drums in the high school yeah. band. So I can't remember exactly how it come up, but, you know, you always need a bass player. So I told Dave, <laughs> I think you can play bass. So I teach him how to play Hey Joe on a bass guitar, and that's the beginning of the Dog Hill Gang. Yeah, that's and the beginning up, of mine and your yeah. musical and he gets one of his uh, friends, uh, Jake Lee, to play drums. And then we set out with the Dog Hill Gang. And How old were y'all then? It was out of college. It was out of college. It was 17, 17 18, 18 years yeah. old. It was, 
And we get our first gig at the VFW in Waycross, which I think we made $9 a piece. <laughs> and the crowd broke out in yeah. a fight, and we had to go out the back door. With well, there weren't nobody listening to us. They were, the crowd was all in the front part of the lounge, and we were just back there playing for yeah. for the doorman, who was Gary Keels. Right. And it, it was taking up money at the door, and uh, and and your mama was there. Yeah, she was one of the members. Yeah. But yeah. they did actually come back out there at one point. Into yeah. the crowd because yeah. they got in a fight. You don't remember the fight? <laughs> I tell you, that's too. Far they got back. in a fight, and and we had, we had so little equipment we could put we could leave in five minutes because <laughs> we were singing out of our guitar amps. We had <laughs> we had two plugs in each amp, so we plugged our mics and our guitars in each amp, and turned them wide open, and probably invented nine inch nails because all our vocals had to be distorted. Absolutely. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> Our song list, uh, and uh, that was, let's see, I was off at Georgia Southern College. Yeah. This was right after graduation from high school. This would have been about October, November of 71. Yeah. We landed the VFW gig. But I came home from Georgia Southern that weekend and didn't tell my parents that right. I was coming home and spent the night over at Billy Ray's house. And uh, Ray came home from South Georgia College. Right. And, of course, Jake, our drummer, was still, still in, high in uh, high school at that time. But we got together and rehearsed all afternoon Saturday. Our song list at the time was uh, Credence Clearwater, Chris Christofferson. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, some grand funk. And that was yeah, probably it. Because we played yeah. everything they wrote just about. Right, right. Yeah. And... Uh, it's hard to believe it was we were an doing innocent... Bob Dylan Christofferson back then, you know. Yeah, that's you know? true. I mean, that's, yeah, you, you know, all the other bands, yeah. uh, our contemporaries around Waycross were yeah. playing uh, Doobie Brothers yeah. and and a uh, uh, little more danceable stuff. We were going straight into the almost uh, Americana before Americana before it was Americana, <laughs> country rock. That's what they called yeah, it back yeah. then. So we could, I guess you could call it, the name of that band was uh, the Dog Hill Gang. Yeah. And, and then surprisingly, it's before we even knew Grandma had actually been the pioneer of country rock. Had no we were clue playing country at that rock, time. Not realizing what it connected to us. So then about, <clears throat> um, about a year later, maybe or two, we. It was 73. Yeah. That uh, we, uh, 73 was the year that. Graham Parsons uh, passed away uh, right. September. Right. And this is funny. Now, uh, when you were off at South Georgia College in Douglas, right. I remember you coming back one weekend and us getting together, and you said, one of the guys in my dorm told me that one of the birds was from Waycross. Well, no, no, that ain't what yeah. happened, no. Yeah. Let me tell you how that happened. I was riding down the road. In my Carmagia Volkswagen back in high school, uh -huh. and I heard it come on a local radio. Oh, it was a DJ. DJ said one of the birds from Waycross, and, and that's all I heard. <laughs> I didn't get no details. So when I went to South Georgia College, I was a Goose Creek fan. I was listening to Goose Creek albums in my room, and this classmate of mine down the hallway come up and he said, You like that? I said, Yeah. He said, I got an album you need to listen to in my room. So we go down there, and he's got the Gilded Palace of Sin. Blind Burrito. Yeah, and I. No, nothing else other than we listened to it, 
All I remember is the name because that name stuck out. All right. And that was the only time I listened to it. Didn't remember even anything about it other than listening to it. And it's, it always stuck in my head. Yeah. And then when we found out about Graham, I remembered him telling me about the Flying Brito Brothers. Mm -hmm. So we were getting something there. We were, uh, but what happened, Dave, <coughs> Dave picked up a penthouse magazine. I don't know why. <laughs> for the articles. <laughs> for reading the articles. Well, anyway. I like to read, <laughs> yeah. you know. And he reads this article in there about this live performance of this musician by the name of Graham Parsons and Goes on in there, and the guy starts yeah. talking about him being from Waycross, Georgia. Yeah, and, and, and that was it. That was like. And Dave showed up to my house the, the very revelation day. that tied all those other things yeah. together that we considered right. suspect. When the DJ said right. the, one of the birds is from Waycross, we'd sit down and we'd hash it out. You know, we'd say, yeah. all right, the birds that we knew was turn, 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 you know, it tambourine man. And yeah. we looked at the all the guys in, in that group said, there ain't none of these people mm. from Waycross, you know. No. Uh, word traveled slow. Things back came then. to Waycross slowly back in it the did. day, you know. I mean, you had to read Rolling Stone magazine to even know anything after <coughs> You didn't have the internet. I mean, yeah. it was just a magazine, album covers, and and what have you that we gleaned all of our information I remember the day from. you came to my house, though. You had just left work from... Well, I was, I was in St. Simon's delivering some plywood, and I yeah. bought that penthouse at lunch, and I read that. I mean, you sitting there and read it, we thought. And hauled ass back to Waycross, straight to your house. And, and we were sitting there and read it. Here it is. How can this be? You know, how do The Waycross connection. Yeah, and from that point on, I started researching a little bit from that point, trying to figure it out, which was hard to do back then. There wasn't nowhere to research until... I drive home from South Georgia College in September, and and Becky opens the door, and I'll never forget what she said. Guess who died? And I said, who? I know. I said, Graham, like that. You knew. I don't know what happened. I said, Graham, like that. And she said, yeah, he's dead. And he had only been dead a couple of days because of the Associated Press story of his burning is what got in the paper. And... uh I remember thinking, God, I mean, something just hit me like that. I got to figure this one out. I mean, I literally the next day went out and started researching, trying to find who, what, when, and where. And everybody I'd find would connect me to one other person. You see what I mean? And finally, I got pretty well down all the childhood stuff. It took it took a little while to get it done. And uh, and How'd you go about that? I, w I would find one person tell them about another person. And a lot of it was the older people that knew the Connor family. Mm -hmm. And I would go talk to them, and they would tell me. A lot of them didn't even realize Graham Connor had turned in, had become Graham Parsons. The Let me just say a little know. something here for people who aren't familiar at all what we're talking about. There was a, a very influential uh, musician by the name of Graham Parsons uh, uh, who lived the first 12 years of his life in Waycross. His name at that time was Graham Connor. His father passed away at an early age. His mother remarried to a Parsons fellow and changed his name to Parsons. But he, mm -hmm. he was a huge influence. He played with the Birds, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, he influenced the Rolling Stones. Uh, he discovered Emmy Lou Harris, and uh, he died tragically of uh, uh, at the young age of 26 right. in uh, in uh, 1973, and. Uh, it was at that point what what we're talking about. That's that's the point where you right. picked up the mantle and 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 you started researching and interviewing right. 
uh, and his daddy at the time that they lived in Waycross in the uh, in the fifties. Uh, his daddy was the uh, uh, manager uh, of a uh, box factory that built orange crates. Uh, that uh, uh, Graham's uh, grandparents were from Winter Haven. His mother's family right. was from Winter Haven, and they, they were like millionaires. They owned these big right. orange groves down there. Largest citrus family in the world. Actually. The Snively Groves. Yeah. And uh, once Graham's daddy married his mother, uh, the family said, well, what are we going to do with this guy? So they they stuck him in Waycross, Georgia, and said, build the crates for us right. <laughs> to yep. ship the citrus right. in. And that's how Waycross came home to Graham. But uh, but you interviewed a lot of the the workers from the old box factory. Yeah, I found a lot of the workers, and then I did find a couple of his friends and talked to them. <clears throat> and they they knew he'd become Graham Parsons. They just didn't understand the whole history. Most people couldn't understand what Graham Parsons had done unless they were deep into music. That's you see, you wouldn't really understand. Henry Clark. And yeah, Henry and Dickie Smith Dickie were friends. Smith. But they didn't have the influence. No, the, and it would just, probably even more now they do because, I mean, especially after Ken Burns. Is, mm-hmm. You know, anybody watched that, you have no denial of his influence. Mm-hmm. But uh, we were early on understanding the influence because we were such big fans of the country rock music. We were all big Eagles fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just amazed us when we come to find out that he's the biggest influence on the Eagles of all. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're into at the time. In fact... When I first come home from the Army, I brought a, bought an Eagles album at the PX, the first album. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is before we knew about Graham. Oh, yeah. I brought yeah. you to my house yeah. and sit you down in between the two speakers and put the album on. I remember Dave just sitting there just, it's like Dave was hearing something he hadn't heard because it was like hearing the Beatles almost. Yeah. You were hearing the Eagles, the first stuff, and it was so much different and better than contemporaries rock. at the time it, it was it, it what what yeah. i was amazed at was because it kind of came around full circle for me the first yeah. music i ever listened to was daddy's hank williams right. records you know yeah and i loved them you know all of those early web pierce johnny cash uh, yeah johnny horton all of that stuff, you know, so as a child, but I got yeah. away from that as I grew up, started listening to AM radio and popular radio and uh, uh, went through the Beatles and went through Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden in 72, yeah. the Eagles come out and it yeah. turns see, it right back around again. Well, see, and we had already playing something similar to it. We were already doing Bob Dylan and Christopherson. Mm-hmm. We were doing country rock. Even though I'm not even sure it had a term to it at the time. I mean, a genre, you know. And then, you you know, you hear that, and I remember Dave was taken by the most because of the harmonies and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the Sweetbriar Band got born out of that. Yeah, in about 74, we put uh, uh, another band together. The Eagles it was just were a, you and me. The just Eagles you were a big me. part of it. We were learning the Eagles yeah. stuff so much then. And uh, uh, we were sitting around your trailer one day, and uh, your father-in-law's uh, old Gibson uh, Les Paul was right. laying on the bed, and I picked it up, started playing a little bit of lead from Ramblin' Man. Ramblin' Man. And uh, was it, was we had it? been talking about, well, who we're going to get to play what in the band? And Ray said, 
Ray heard me cook a little lead. <laughs> and, so and he said, well, you can be the lead guitar player. And I said, I can? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't no lead guitar player in a long shot. You're pretty good for that. But <laughs> You're pretty good for that. But it was, it was me on guitar, Ray on rhythm guitar, and then we hired uh, Danny Altman on, on drums and Thank vocals, and and Hank Harry Tankersley. Tank Tankersley brought Tank him in as the bass player. Was his player. name on yeah. bass, and uh, uh, we rehearsed in a little old practice house on Dog Hill, and uh, named the band Sweetbriar, which right. was uh, named after a, a rose that grows wild in the Okefenokee Swamp. James Cox gave us. Yeah, name. James Cox. Our next door neighbor friend used Suggested to work out that, at the yeah. Okefenokee Swamp Park, and he still turned a good us name on to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the first real gig we get, we talked James Harrington into letting us play at the steakhouse for one hundred and fifty dollars, which split up between four people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. weren't much money, but uh, we brought quite a crowd, so he hired us again. Mm-hmm. On Same a third, it was on a Thursday night, yeah, right in between right. the regular bands, played right. Wednesday, Friday, right, yeah. Saturday, and he let us. He let us play twice, and then I called him. Then he called us back up to play a third time, and I tried to push the price up. <laughs> he said, "Nope, ain't paying you hundred thousand. Well, we ain't doing this no more for hundred fifty. So, <laughs> so for that point on, we started getting quite a bit of booking. I was doing some heavy calling. I finally started mm -hmm. getting us booked good, and uh. And then we brought in Joe, Joe Shearer and on lead guitar. He was a sure enough lead guitar. And Ricky Alderman on piano, and, and the band really picked itself up. And then, What uh, did you move to at that point? Did you play just was, acoustic? Uh, just we, had guitar. Two, we had two rhythm guitars. And, and uh, Joe was doing most of the lead then. How many members is that? Six. 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 Yeah. And we started getting a lot of bookings, a lot of uh, school yeah, dances. Uh, played such. a good bit over in Bacon County. And, but the uh, music now. <clears throat> Jess. The the musical taste was changing then because Joe and Ricky was moving it more toward a different sound. It wasn't bad, but it was going away from country rock. It was, it was more, uh, more Almond Brothers influenced. Right, yeah. uh, some more of the, uh, the southern, southern rock. rock thing was going on. <clears throat> then Doobie Brothers with, stuff uh, like that. Led I mean, uh, Leonard Skinner and uh, Wet Willie. Marshall Tucker, all those bands. All which stuff we played that, it all. We played all that well, stuff. Well, that's what, what the people wanted in the clubs. You played that. But uh, um, I left the band anyway. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I wanted to write songs. That's the truth. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I wanted to write songs so bad. I left the band and took my Stratocaster of an Eminem music over there and traded them even for that damn... Yamaha? Yeah, that and the Yamaha that's one of the probably the best Yamaha's ever built. That's five hundred, nice you know. Set out to write songs. And from that point on, honestly, that's all I wanted to do was write songs, have other people sing them, and BMI send me a royalty check or whoever. Yeah. Which I'm still waiting on. <laughs> uh, Let me hold that guitar a second. I want I want to play a little snippet here of the first song that you and I ever wrote oh, together. Time. This is it's called, it called Time. Yeah. Real heavy. Now it's yeah. deep. I was it's I was deep. playing this little this, riff is what it was. Is this Sweet Briar or is this uh This was before any bands. Right. It was probably about seventy two. Uh-huh. And I made and this little riff up and then me and Dave started writing words around the riff. And then And you still remember it? I do. I, I, I wrote jotted the words down today. So yeah, it's yeah. It's pretty 
deep philosophical deep <laughs> better not laugh at the wind it'll take you away from your friends and the time that you spend we'll be wishing to see them again how time flies as life goes by you wonder why you even try <laughs> deep that's pretty good though for well, us. That's pretty good well, no, it no, could be a it could be a tornado song yeah. oh my the God. wind comes and it takes you away from your friends that was that was uh <laughs> It was actually a little riff I did in there with it. I can't remember how I did yeah, it. Yeah, I know that wasn't the actual. Some little riff or something. Uh, and I was playing it all the time, and then me and Dave just starts writing the words to it, you know, and yeah. it just fell together. <laughs> kind of like Paul and John. So, kind mm -hmm. of, you know. <laughs> that was our uh, initiation. We and then we started together. writing a lot then, of songs. Then yeah. we started songwriting individually. We did. But more we had so individually notebooks, from each other. Yeah. And then. And then I uh, set up my little studio in the backyard yeah. with a little uh, the uh, Sony machine. Mm -hmm. And that's when we started cutting our first demos on that Sony machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah. then we did uh, uh, fast forward into uh, 1989 or so. You had uh, been writing and recording in your studio. Well, back up first. Let's yeah. go back to let's get this here. We, after the sewing machine, you bought a TAC machine. Yeah, uh, a Kai. A Kai yeah, machine. A Kai. And then we were able to do simul sync record and get more tracks. Mm -hmm. And we got stuff done there and we went to the back of Roy Crosby's funeral home studio. <laughs> Roy, Roy, studio Roy, in the back of Roy funeral go, home. Roy walked in one room to, and, and, and whatever he Consoled, was doing. He'd consoled the, the yeah. grieving. Yeah, and do whatever he did with the bodies, I guess, and then come back in and record us. And <laughs> I remember we were in there recording wow. one time, and Bruce Woods was playing drums, and he said, "Where's the drink machine?" And Roy said, "It's in the bombing room." And, and Bruce said, "I'll go across the road to the Hardys and get a drink." <laughs> so we record stuff there, and me and Dave take our first big trip to Atlanta. That's right. We yeah. go to Bill Lowry's. We're going to try to get in the door. We ended up at Rodney Mills. Yeah, yeah. And and played we, him our songs. And Cotton Carrier listens to our stuff. And they didn't, nobody give us any contracts or anything. So we're planning on going on to Nashville to, to really make it. Except Dave locks his keys in his car. <laughs> oh. And it takes all our money to get the keys unlocked. <laughs> so then you. So we just come back home. So the Nashville trip got short. Wow. We stayed yeah. at Raw Speed's house. Yeah. Okay, well then, uh, that was 1980, 81. It was right after John Lennon got killed. Right, right after was. Lennon. Yeah. And from that point, I kept recording demos on what I had, and you did on yours. Mm -hmm. Kept doing it. Mm -hmm. Finally, I managed to get up enough equipment, build up a studio in the background and in the backyard, and I bought a, finally got enough money up to buy a Tascam 8-track reel-to-reel on half-inch. And an inline mixing board and a few pieces and master machine and uh, actually had quality mm -hmm. for demos. Called you up to do the test. Remember? 
you came in to help me do the test. Really? On what, the first recording. What did we do? Something you wrote. Huh. And I don't remember what it was. And this was before Grey Rider. Yeah. Oh, okay. And we we do something of yours. And it's right along the time you were going through your first divorce. I remember that because you were having a kind of rough time there. And, and But we were doing something of yours. Yeah. And you were doing all the tracks. We were just overdubbing them, just testing all the tracks and the, the audio out, you know. And then I don't know next what happened, but finally uh, I brought Farrell Howell in. That's what I, yeah. I brought Farrell in. I wrote songs for him, and he recorded them with his band. And I took them to Bill Lowry, and he liked them. He decided to publish them. And one of them was The Gray Rider. Well, that came later. No, oh. he, he published four songs for me. Dang. And then on the fifth song, what happened was, after watching Josie Wells' movie for a thousand <laughs> times, knowing all the parts to it, of course, I write a song, The Gray Rider, that's about that uh, Josie, Josie Wells' story. And just kind of concepted it a little bit, but... And I thought, you know, Waylon Jennings was a big fan of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. Waylon had already recorded America that Bill Lowry had gave him, that Sammy Johns had had wrote, and it had become a major hit for him. So I was going to do it like songwriters do. You target an artist that the publisher's already connected to. Mm -hmm. So I I record Gray Rider myself in the store using a drum machine. I mean, mean, in the studio with a drum machine. I played all the parts. Brought Tony Tatum in doing some lead for me just to get a kind of old Marshall Tucker lead sound on it. Send it up to Bill Lowry. I called Cotton on the phone. He had it, and I told him, I said, Cotton, I'd, you know, this was my idea. You know, Mr. Lowry give this to Waylon. And Cotton said, well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll give it to Mr. Lowry. We'll see. Like that. He didn't Cotton act, Carrier was uh, Bill Lowry's man. A&R man yeah, that you had to A&R. go through before. Who was actually one of the famous A&R people who would give the Beatles Mr. Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of his great stories was uh, Never Promised Your Rose Garden, gave it to Lynn Anderson. But anyway, he, at first, he, he said, I'll make sure Mr. Larry hears it. Well, I don't think nothing of it. The next day, I get a call from Bill Lowry himself at my uh-huh. house. Because I've never even personally talked to Bill at this point. I'm always talking to Cotton. You don't get in Mr. Lowry's door yet. Uh, Billy Ray, this is Bill Larry. Uh, I really like that song, Great Writer. He said, have you sent it anywhere else? And I had, but I didn't want to tell him <laughs> because I didn't have exclusive contract with him, and I sent it to this company called Hat Band Music. I'll tell you that story real quick, what happened there. Uh, anyway, he said, uh, we're sending this straight to Whalen. The contracts are on the, ma- on the way to the, in the mail. And, God, and uh, Bill Lowry was a publisher. I couldn't. So there wasn't any money changing hands, but uh, he was the publisher. And that was the first step man, as a songwriter. Yeah. I could Get your sleep. song in the hands of a publisher. Especially the publisher a major would publisher. Exploit yeah. it to a recording artist. If they recorded it, yeah. then the money started coming back in for both the publisher right. and the songwriter. So. And. Uh, but the funny thing, when he told me not to send it nowhere else, I had already mailed it to this company called Hat Band Music that I'd found in this book of publishers I'd bought. Because I seen in the pub, I would get, I had this book of publishers that would tell you who they'd sent songs to. And I found this one called Hat Band Music, said they sent songs to Charlie Daniels and people like that. Mm. So I sent it to Hat Band Music. Well, I don't realize who I've sent it to until I call them back up on the phone. And and know the funny thing, I had called them before Bill Lowry called me. I always called to see when I sent a 
tape out, I'd always call to make sure they received it. Mm-hmm. And I'd called this and got the secretary on the phone, and then I was telling her, you know, who I was. That Bill Larry had already published four <clears throat> of my songs, and anyway, and she, I could tell she didn't want to hear it. Anyway, she got me off the phone pretty quick. Well, when Miss Larry calls and tells me not to send it nowhere else, I think, God, man, I better hurry up and call, and tell them. So I called the same number back, and the girl she said, "Oh, you're you're the guy that keeps claiming Bill Larry's publishing your songs." <laughs> I said, well, ma'am, I just want to let you know he just published another one. That's my fifth one. And she said, what did you say your name was? <laughs> I said, Billy Ray here. And she said, uh, I'll have to get Mr. Kasmus to call you back up. Well, I didn't know who he was. Who was he? Charlie Daniels' manager. He owned uh, the company. Oh, okay. So he calls me at the night. I'm in the studio recording a band in the studio for time, you know. It's Douglas Kasmus calls me up. And he said, he hadn't even heard the song yet. He just called because of the conversation. Mm-hmm. He said, well, we can't take anything anyway because they were in the middle of a suit over a long-haired country boy, something to do with that. And they couldn't accept nothing outside of staff writers. He said, well, mm. he said, but he said, you actually got five songs with Bill Lowry? I said, yeah, in one year's time. He said, man, he don't publish with 100 songs a year like mm-hmm. that. And I said, well, I got five of them. Well, that's as far as that ever went. Yeah. I mean, it didn't turn into anything more than that. But anyway, uh, I finally, I'd sent more stuff up. And I don't remember, I probably sent more than I can't think what I did after that. But I remember realizing I had made a connection with Bill Lowry. The largest independent music publisher in the world. One of the greatest of all. I knew I'd made this connection with Ray Ryder, and I can't remember at what point I called Dave on the phone, and I told him, I said, listen, you know, this time we need to sit down and try to make the best of this connection, and uh, you come in and help me do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we got seven more songs published. of that published, so it ended up in 12 yeah. and all. And then he uh, he liked the stuff, but he fell in love with you. That song. You, we took we took oh, you, you up there. Me, I never forget me and Dave took you up there, and Mr. Larry, who always treated us good, he took that tape and stuck it in, and he was just looking at me and Dave, and you could hear the hiss coming from <laughs> the machine. He turned that wide out of me. and you come on and played, and he just, man, he said, "Let me set this up a little bit. This is the the biggest independent music publisher yeah. in the world." And he is mm-hmm. a big man, too. Yep. Big man. Been in the business since yep. the 50s, you know. You got Beatles. Old gray hair, full you. head of gray hair, you know. Big, big guy sitting behind a huge oak desk. Behind him was this wall of uh, yeah. uh, reel-to-reels and cassette decks and amplifiers and everything. And all over the walls going... Uh, up the staircase and r- down the halls to his office were filled with gold records right. through the years. Yeah. This wow. guy that published oh, uh, Young Love Bebop by Sonny James, Bebop Alula, Walk on by that y'all sing. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Moonlight by the Beatles. Walk on by Leroy Van Dyke, All Mr. Joe Moonlight, South, Billy Joe Royal. Joe South, Billy Joe Royal. Oh, Amer- um, Classics uh, for Classics Man Four. Rhythm Section. Yeah, All of that was yeah. the history of this guy. And here we are sitting in these over sized leather chairs you know and i'm on this side of bill lowry <laughs> sitting in the center and i'm over here and raise over there and uh 
he pops that cassette tape in. That's our and demo. And just turns the yeah. volume up. This is the first time he hears demo, what yeah. we cut in the studio. And before the song comes on, before the tape spools through, yeah. you hear. Yeah, he told somebody, he got wide open on mm -hmm. him. That, uh, and I was thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just leaning on his big desk like this, Staring looking at Ray, and then he'd look over at me, <laughs> not saying a word. No. And then the song comes blaring out, and he don't even blink, you know. <laughs> He's listening to it and keeps looking back into it us. And when it's over, he jumps up out of his chair. He goes, that'd be perfect for Conway, Conway Twitty. Twitty. Yes, sir. He fell and, in love, but he wanted us to change a few things. Yes. Lyrics because. of the last verse. Because he wrote yeah. back and two with me on the last verse till I'd done what he wanted on the last verse, a little arrangement mm -hmm. of lyrics. That was a pretty <clears> song. That and we sent it song. in, and he and we waited. He wait, he gave it so many months. He said, I'm going to give it uh, so many months to see if Conway Twitty's going to record it. And if he don't, we're coming up here to do this one. Well, sure enough, Conway never did it. Well, you think he died. Maybe he might have died during that six right. months because it was right around that time. And Terry called me... Uh, Bill Larry's daughter called me and said, Mr. Larry wants us to do this and, and uh, release it. So we made the arrangement to go up there and record it at Larry's studio. And uh, then we come out that, uh, about a three-day session, we did you and loving you in about three days. And we, at the end of it all, it was to trip back up the hill to Bill Larry's office. We go back on and he puts on the master recording. And i never forget and when he listened to you, because he liked you, the love in you as well, but he mm -hmm. just was taken by you. He jumped up behind that desk. He said, boys, this can be a big hit. And then you remember, we were sitting there thinking, my God, we finally arrived, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, we're releasing this thing. And he puts it out on Southern Tracks label. It was, and, the, uh, it was the first CD release was, on yeah. Southern Tracks to radio stations sure around the country. In fact, the number on it's 0100. Uh -huh. Atlanta Rhythm Sections was the second one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we followed them. Yeah. Uh, they but followed us. Yeah. Prior to that, they would send uh, 45s, 45s yeah. out to the radio. And, and we were actually broke in to Armed Forces Radio because it was the same time the first Iraq invasion started. And we broke into that first. And then we broke into stuff out on the West Coast because mm -hmm. I was getting stuff sent to me all the time. But Oregon was good. And Washington. Yeah. And, uh, we didn't know anything about the things and overseas until we got royalty checks from uh, about three years later. Yeah. From BMI that it had actually broke into airplay, regular airplay in the hospital. Yeah, we actually got a royalty check. We got paid money for our for the airplay of right. the of the the songs. And, How much uh, was? It? I framed mine as eight dollars and sixty three cents. Well. That's a lot of money in Holland. <laughs> yeah, we were big in Holland, <clears throat> but uh, they there was. Uh, I remember they had uh, two uh, radio. Uh, uh, I guess they called them promoters or, or Wade Pepper was one of them, and, and they split the country by the Mississippi River. Right. Uh, west West Coast was west, right. and then the East Coast. You yep. had two guys. Calling radio stations and saying, hey, play this, play this, come right. on, play this. It's after yeah. payola and drugola and all that stuff where people could get airplay for favors. And uh, 
Uh, it did well out west. Yeah, yeah. It didn't do much of anything on, in the east. It did. And, uh, but that was exciting. That well, was an exciting. And Larry, Mr. Larry always liked it, though. You know, he, Terry, his daughter, told me he played it all the time in his office. Did he? Yeah, she said we'd hear it all the time down the hallway. He just loved that song. It had done something for him. But it was in his latter days, too. You know, he had already had his big impact in the music industry. Mm -hmm. If we came along 10 years earlier, it would have been different. Been because different. even he was losing <clears throat> the influence. Nashville was changing so much. He told me once that even he was losing that influence, you know. And he didn't get a lot of hits after that. If you think back, uh, in the 90s, he didn't have many hits. And one for Judd. Naomi yeah, Judd. yeah, Rock Bottom. Winona. Yeah. What was her name, Winona? Winona. Yeah, he didn't have many in the 90s, so we were probably right there in the last of uh, of his heyday, you know. Uh, yeah, after he passed away a couple of years later, uh, his kids wound up selling his entire music publishing catalog. For $20 million. Largest Sony sale. To was, Sony. Largest sale in the U.S. history of an independent catalog. Sony ended up with all our songs. So our songs traveled to Sony in Nashville. Right. And then a company out of California ended yeah. up buying it from Sony called yeah. the Bicycle Music Group. Huge company. God, I'm mighty huge. They bought all of Robert Johnson's, all the Billy Holiday's, John Fogarty's, George Harrison's. They bought up all of these catalogs. Didn't Neil Diamond have something to do with that or B.J. Thomas? Some, yeah, he had, it seemed like Neil Diamond Neil was Diamond. involved in it in the beginning. And what it is are a big music, movie uh, music. They it's push called music Concord. to films. Concord's the name of the company. Bicycle's the publishing. But they're big in the film industry. So that's where our songs are at today. Uh Still waiting. Still a chance. Yeah, I mean, it never is. Never uh, know. You never give up. Well, that's one of the quotes that Bill Lowry told us when we were up there. He said that, uh, this is what he told Joe South. He said, boys, the cream will always rise to the top. <laughs> you know, because Joe South wrote, I never promised you a rose garden when he was 16. Yes, sure did. And I don't know how old he was. By the time Lynn well, Anderson recorded it, what happened it was just sat for all them years. Cotton Carey kept telling them and it was a cut in the country song. Uh, and so they released it with Dobie Gray rock format. They released it with Billy Joe Royal and the rock radio, all of them in rock, and Joe South. And it had three releases in rock radio in 67, 68, and long in there, and it don't break into anything. And Cotton takes the song and gives it to Lynn Anderson. And she... Has the number one song of the seventies year, and 70, yeah. basically he said, "I told y'all so." It's a country <laughs> song. You see what I mean? But he also gave Brian Epstein, Mister Moonlight, whenever Tommy Rowe had had a number one hit, "Oh Sheila," with Mister Lowry, and he was sent over. To, Beatles actually covered that. Yeah, and he was sent over to be the headliner of a tour in England that the Beatles were actually second billed to in the beginning. And while over there, he gave Brian Epstein Mr. Moonlight, which would have been, Lowry had released it under the name Dr. Feelgood and the Interns. Mm -hmm. Roy Lee Johnson wrote it and it didn't break nowhere. And so Epstein gives it to them in, in uh, March of 63. And October 64, they record it. Mm -hmm. So another one of Cotton Carrier's good moves. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it ends up even better in the cartoon. 
So it ain't just a single on radio. It's a cartoon single. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. It's one yeah. of her cartoon skits. Beatles the Beatle cartoon. cartoon. Yeah, the Beatle cartoon. Mr. Moonlight gets chosen as oh, one of yeah. the cartoon songs and even becomes more known because of the cartoon. <laughs> yeah, because it had a skit to it about a moonlight or something. You know. Were you feeling like playing this, uh, one of your songs? God, let's see. I know you wrote a ton of them. Let's see. Uh, well, let's see. Um, this is a cardboard shack. There was an old man who lived on the edge of town. Used to go down and see him sometimes for the sun went down. He cooked his food on an open fire beside the railroad tracks. Every night he laid his head in a cardboard shack. Told me, son, a man never knows what's around the next bend. And some hearts get broke so bad they can never mend. And sometimes the hurt so much, pain won't end. Some folks hit bottom and don't get back up again The old man died one cold winter's day In a cardboard shack on the cold ground he lay Just one more homeless soul in these times so real Just one more lonely grave on Pauper's Hill He told me, son, a man never knows what's around the next bend Some hearts get broke so bad they can never mend And sometimes the hurt so much the pain won't end And some folks hit bottom and don't get back up again Tonight I'll sleep warm bed Be thankful to have a place to lay my head Somewhere someone will sleep in a cardboard shack On the edge of town down by the railroad tracks 
I tell you, son, a man never knows what's around the next bend. And some hearts get broke so bad they can never mend. And sometimes the hurt so much the pain won't end. Some folks hit bottom and don't get back up again. There we go. All right. Good one. My homeless song. Yeah. Did uh, Lowry publish that one? No, I never did. I sent it up there. You know, he always wanted the hits. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he was always in the market for, which is. Well, we tried to do. Right, yeah. And we yeah. did. We, we gave it a good it. try. We didn't get the hit, yeah. we wrote the hit. Yeah. But, you know, it's much funner, really, writing the stuff you want to write like that. Yeah, well. It's just trying to make a living doing it, you know. Uh, well, speaking of uh, making a living in music, uh, here's another angle that ties us all together is right. that... Uh, your son is the bass player in Sean's right. band, the Pine Box Dwellers, That's and it. he, Jesse Heron, and so was your and son. my son is right. the drummer in there the Pine Box Dwellers. Yep. Y'all started as bands together. Now y'all sons are in a band together. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, like Dog Hill carries on. <laughs> yeah, and 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 there and our new friend that we made last year, Larry Murray. Larry Murray. So now we back it all the way up. All right, okay. let's talk about Larry Murray for a minute uh, for people out there. Okay. Larry Murray originally was from... Born in Waycross. Born lived, in Waycross. Lived in Waycross his first nine years. Yeah. and uh, Actually was born in 37 here and uh, <clears throat> raised by his grandmother till he was nine and she died <clears throat> when he was nine and he was kind of switched around by family members for a while. He ended up in Blackshire in the Marion Borden house, nine miles from Waycross, raised there till he graduates from high school, 55, from Blackshire High. And he ends up joining the Navy and ends up in San Diego, San Diego as a diver uh, in the Navy and comes out. And uh, in 61, he opens the infamous legendary blue guitar store and the Blue Guitar Store, historically now, historians have went back and realized the the California music scene dates back to Larry Murray and the Blue Guitar Store. And in that store, he creates a band called the Scottsville Score Barkers that has Chris Hillman, who's original Birds later, yeah. Bernie Ledden, who's original Eagles later when they're young, when they're teenagers. And they play in this bluegrass folk band called the Scottsville Square Barkers. And they become quite well known. Uh, and they set up a live stage in the, in the store. And uh, finally, a lot of musicians start hanging out there. They end up being quite well known now, uh, later on. And, uh, is this a music store, like an instrument store? Yeah, it's a music store, a luthier shop, uh, lessons, and a live show. And... Uh, everything's in there they just try to do it all you know they start having open mics and started having open mics in there well the scottsville square barkers built a stage for them to <clears> perform <throat> theirself and then people start coming play and they end up with people like hoyt axton mason williams you know linda ronstadt bernie Ledden, of course chris hillman all those <laughs> california musicians hanging out there 
and then Larry forms uh, Hearts and Flowers and, and brings Bernie Ledden back in with that, and they get a Capitol record contract in 67, and they do two albums, which is some of the first really country rock mm -hmm. stuff. And and Graham shows up, of course, in 67, joins the Birds, mm -hmm. and shoots m more way across into what becomes country rock. Mm -hmm. And Larry stays with Hearts, Hearts and Flowers until he... Uh, he starts working in TV. Uh, actually, uh, helped Glenn Campbell set up the Glenn Tam Campbell Good Time Hour, and then Johnny Cash hires him to help uh, do the Johnny Cash show. And as, as a writer, as a music writer, writer, and he writes uh, Six White Horses for Johnny as and, a songwriter. As a songwriter, and he writes Bugler for the Birds, which is one of their most well-known songs. Clarence White sang it, who was one of Larry's good friends, and of course Larry went on. Later on, to write a number of songs for Chris Christopherson and uh, David Allen Coe, Living Newton John, Percy Sledge, uh, the Dillards, you know, the Walker Brothers. Uh, I mean, he just wrote tons more songs. Bellamy Brothers. He just found that one the other day. Yeah. The other day, he told me, he said, there's a song I wrote for the Bellamy Brothers. I can't find it. See if you can find it. Well, first, he said, I wrote it for those two brothers out of Florida. I said, which ones? He said, the Bellamy's. Well, and he said it's called Bound to Explode. Well, I found it, and it was an actual video, professionally done video of the song, and uh, I tapped it and put it on his Facebook. You know? How did uh, How did y'all meet? You and Larry meet? I knew about it? Larry for years. I just yeah. could not find him. I knew way back. I can't even remember how far back that he had wrote Six White Horses and Bugler. I knew he was from Waycross. That's all I knew. Those two things, three things, and I. Somewhere back in the 90s, I got one of John Beeland's phone numbers from, from those girls that was putting out the Cosmic American News. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find out where Larry Murray was because I knew John Beeland would always give him credit for being in the industry. I get John on the phone. He <coughs> won't tell me how to get in touch with Larry. So I gave up until... But I was always posting stuff on Facebook about Larry's songs that I'd already discovered. Uh and Gary, of course, he had some kin people in town here, too. Mm -hmm. yeah, but, Gary, uh, my buddy Gary. Murray. Gary Murray and right. Gary's uh, daddy, Ken. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when John Beeland come played with us at the Marty Stewart show, mm -hmm. he come and hung out in the store with me for hours that day. And I said, listen, doggone it, you're going to tell me how to get in touch with Larry Murray this time. Okay, I'll show you how. So he shows me. I send Larry a message. And Larry accepts my friendship on Facebook. That was all, and I just okay. still posting up a few things. And then in January of last year, I think it was, seemed like it was right after the turn of the year, I was sitting there, and the phone rings, pick it up, my store phone, it's Larry Murray. And we just become the best of friends, and he starts telling me his whole story, and then I start really figuring it all out. And the more I researched, the more he told me, then I started coming up on the fact that what I thought I'd come up on was that the whole California music scene had started at the Blue Guitar Store with Larry and all the events that happened. Well, now the Country Music Hall of Fame's figured it out, and they're actually doing a professional research on it where they're going to actually do a full display in the Country Music Hall of Fame and, and basically show how in 61 the Blue Guitar sparked a movement in California that ends up being the Birds, the Poco, you know, Eagles. Flying Brito Brothers, Buffalo Springfield, a yeah. lot of solo artists yeah. 
you know, that came out of there. And then it ends up the Eagles. And that's what they're wanting to show, how this little old music store ends up the catalyst being the number one American band of all time in, in record sales, the Eagles. And it starts basically with a guy from across Georgia. But you also got Graham Parsons coming in there on this display. So they're going to show how he comes in and shoots another spark into mm -hmm. it. And then two Waycross boys. Yeah, and when you sit back and think about it, how did this happen? A little town like Waycross, Georgia has two people going in and literally influencing the course of music history. That's because there's something in the water. Something in the water. <laughs> folks, that's it. That's why they call it something <laughs> in the water. I mean, it's just, it's still hard to believe to me. It's that, pretty uh, fascinating. It, it is. is. Uh, and Larry knows it. I mean, Larry sees it, and he sees what's going on here now. And it amazes him what he saw when he came to the festival last year and played. And mm -hmm. What he just saw out there at that festival uh, had an impact on him at 83 years old. The festival he's talking about is the annual Graham Parsons Guitar Pull and Tribute Festival right. that... I started in my backyard in 1998, and these two fellas right here were there at that one, too. There we go. <laughs> so for 23 years now, yeah. we've been having good music in Waycross and uh, in honor of Graham Parsons. And Larry Murray was uh, one of our featured yeah. performers sure just, just last year. Got up and did Six White Horses and Bugler with us. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's back to this whole idea of what y'all are talking about here what we've been talking about for a mm -hmm. long time but it don't make sense to me it, it just still don't well, make sense for a yeah there is something in the water or there's something in the you know cosmic energy of it all because humidity it took the beatles <laughs> to influence us sure to step into music right to, and to pick up an instrument there we go. And, and everything form a band but that mysterious thing that you keep talking about, uh, I don't know what drove us to uh, put Chris Christopherson albums on our turntable in the middle of uh, and that didn't be one of Larry Led Zeppelin and, and Jimi Hendrix and psychedelic let me, let me period. Tell you where Chris fits we were in. listening to that. Let me tell you where Chris fits in with Larry. Chris had slept in his room many a night in his hotel Ramada Inn suite. Johnny Cash had him a suite. Yeah. Well, Waylon and, and Chris and Mickey Newberry didn't have anywhere to live. They slept on this floor many nights. And isn't that something? Now, we were playing Chris's songs all that time back there, and they're influenced yeah, by Larry. Why Why were we doing that? Why did we go there before we knew about Graham Parsons, before we knew about Larry Murray and all? It's something. It's strange. Yeah, something yeah. from our past. Because, like you said, you grew up listening Daddy's to Hank Hanks records and I grew up listening to what Mama and them was all listening yeah. to. How, was, how uh, mainstream was Chris Christopherson then? I mean, probably was it under? Would y'all consider that something he, underground? He had already found? written a, those great songs. As you a know. songwriter, he was. Uh, I picked up his albums. The when albums I, when I was in college, what, I grabbed yeah. his two albums when I was in college because, I, like I said, songwriting. Let me t let me go back to my uh, my, my event when I realized I wanted to be a songwriter. This I got to tell you this one. <laughs> my, I was a big fan of of uh, Blown in the Wind. So Mama buys me a 45 of Blown in the Wind in probably 62 or 3. Peter, Paul, and Mary's Peter version. Paul's version. That's the number one hit. That's really the song that brought Bob Dylan into the world. I mean, it's his first major royalty check. Mm -hmm. He got 
like five grand royalty check from the first royalty check off of that song. First time he ever had any money in his life. But anyway, she buys me this record, and I love the song. But my eyes go down to the guy's name under the song, not Peter, Paul, and Mary. In parentheses. It says B. Dylan, I think. Something like that. I think it is. What wasn't Bob. It said B. Dylan. I thought it was Dylan instead of Dylan. And I thought, whoa, now who is this guy here? And I'm only about 12 years old now. I'm telling you, this is what, 63 mm. or maybe I'm 11 or 12. And I'm mm. thinking, man, I'm even more interested in this fellow than these three singing this song. That's where I realized... I want to write songs, so yeah. I started writing songs within weeks of learning to play guitar. Mm -hmm. I can't find them, thank goodness. <laughs> but <laughs> but they were, they're, I, we always talk about that uh, on here about how those early songs, every song you've uh, written in your life, they ain't all good. <laughs> well, Mr. Larry told us to rewrite. Remember? Yeah, rewrite. So. Yeah. I've got composition books, I'm telling you, stacks that big. I got stuff I ain't never thrown away from. And I don't even know first songs what I the melodies wrote. of them are. I'll pull up the lyrics and yeah. find them in there. I don't even know how in the hell to sing them. I don't know what the melody of the songs are. <laughs> long gone. It's and then you steal gone. from the lyrics. Too. Larry told me he's done this all his yeah. life. So you go back, you steal this one line out of this song that ain't nothing else in it but that one line, Yeah. and you move it yeah. to another one. That's right. I've never thrown anything away. I don't know why I was so disciplined like that in the beginning, but after reading song songwriter, other songwriters talk, yeah. you know, established songwriters talk, they always say the same thing. I remember the first don't good throw song anything Dave, away. Dave wrote was a wrote from one of his girlfriends, a girl he liked. And Annabelle or something. Annabelle. Yeah, that her was name a, was Ann Bell, so I just wrote a song. Annabelle. That was one of the first yeah, songs that I wrote. that was a good song. Annabelle. Yeah. Good melody. That was the first time I noticed a good melody in Dave's songs. And, uh, when when uh, Ray taught me uh, the bass line for Hey Joe. That's right. Uh, all he had in his bedroom was an old silver tone guitar with the four bottom strings on it. Right. The B and the E had busted. I made it for bass. So yeah. he said, well, this is the same as a bass here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I went crazy and, and learned the bass. But I, I realized I couldn't, uh, I wasn't coordinated enough to sing and play bass at the same time. Yeah. And uh, so at that point, I realized that I wanted to learn how to play rhythm guitar, right, right. and uh, I know I really put him through hell. Well, then, we started you know. doing duet together on acoustic. Yeah, but uh, when I was first learning yeah, how to were, change chords and everything, you were framing a lot. I remember. I it was it, it was long. hard going there, and we I think we almost uh, lost friendship with one another through that. Because <laughs> <laughs> like. Uh, it's like, damn, Dave, go home and practice. Well, we finally got a duet going, and we actually recorded a bunch of stuff on a cassette machine doing duet. You remember that little old Norelco cassette machine I like bought? Like a shoebox? Yeah, we, and we recorded a lot of stuff and got us a couple of gigs, you remember. Uh, Playing for the uh, Memorial Drive. That, and we played at the Work County High Football School. Football banquet. Yeah. Pee Wee Football banquet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We did that too. I remember whistling on it. We played a Neil Young song and I whistled the harmonica part and some woman came up to me afterwards and said, you've got the most beautiful whistle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, Lord. Well, we, uh, uh, we have traveled down. Well, we're still the, doing it. That's the, the thing. The you know, historic yeah. road here tonight. Now, this goes back into the, the past. Well, we are the generation that got to experience the greatest period of music history. I think so. I've always said we that the come of age right decade at the point. of the 60s yeah. was one of the greatest. And we got to follow it every day and <clears throat> every one of its changes. Mm -hmm. you know. uh, Certainly, it was a good time to be alive. Yeah. yeah. And I know every generation probably lays claim to that. And, uh, and those generations after us look at us like, yeah, but they a bunch seem of old to, men they seem to talking go back about their to music. Well, in the 90s, I think it was all the bands that were coming out then were influenced by, it had been long enough that it could, that those classics had come back around True. and they True. were trying to imitate it, it poorly. But that's how, when I well, started listening to music and really learning to play and stuff, and uh, I was like, that one of those bands would cover a Neil Young song. Or, yeah, mm, right. Or, yeah. And I would go back and I'm like, who's this? Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's how I fit. Yeah. And then, you know, so it is It is the better generation for sure. <clears throat> well, it was, it was the most original generation, at least probably. Bore a lot of fruit uh, in that generation. The record labels, that, that yeah. decade did. That decade was, it came in, 1960 was, came in as meek yeah. as a lamb. Well, you couldn't even turn the radio on and find a bad song. Think about it. Yeah. You turned the AM radio on, every song on there was a good song. Can you imagine that? And by the end of the 60s, it was... Boy, that's changed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was the Beatles, you know. Yeah. Had, had from 64 to 70, it was the Beatles grew up, you yeah. know, musically. And, and we grew up yeah. exponentially. And But when it started out, it was like, uh, remember rock and roll? They thought they had killed rock and roll yeah, by yeah. by sixty. Buddy Holly was gone. Um, Elvis was in the army. Mm -hmm. um, Jerry Lee Lewis had married his thirteen year old cousin and didn't have any relevancy <laughs> <Oops>. anymore. <laughs> and who was the other one? But uh, well, the labels tried to tame it all down. They tried to knock it back down and everything. <laughs> yeah. And and so moving right into the 60s, you had uh, just some very bland music going on. It was uh, early 60s, uh, yeah. Fabian, Paul Anka, all them single right. name, uh, them uh, one-name guys. Right, yeah. Bobby V, Bobby Rydell. Bobby Vinton. Bobby Vinton. And... and yeah, and then uh, you even had a singing nun at one time. Right. Yeah. It was uh, folk tried to make a little movement right in there. Right. The folk they music did. did, and they and, did. And then slowly, you started by about sixty two, sixty three. You started getting four seasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And 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 their their records sounded different. You yeah. Know, it just sounded different. Yeah. And the Beach Boys. It's a bunch uh, of harmony right. bands and stuff. Harmony bands, but they were. Their sound, the production was different coming was, at you, right? And uh, uh, and then of course the Beatles, and by ship by the end of the decade, I mean it was just, it was just like fast I forward, light speed, you know. Another thing, the way the music changed, that changed so fast, and I, and I, I don't know if you ever realized this, but 
By the time the Beatles <coughs> were successful enough to have large audiences, the audio engineers and technology wasn't ready for it. So their crowds were so big, they were singing sometimes through the horns in the stadiums or something. They didn't have monitors or anything. In fact, monitors were invented in Atlanta, Georgia in a 1965 Beatle concert. The engineer at the Atlanta Stadium invented monitors, experimenting, hoping the Beatles could hear better because they couldn't hear, mm. and invented monitors. Wow. And they went crazy and wanted him to travel with them the rest of the tour. But you take look at that period, like, say, 64 and 5, and they're, they're still trying to sing through the announcing horns at Shea mm. Stadium. By 69, you got scaffolds of sound at Woodstock. Mm-hmm. You went from that, that, two. You went from two track live recording to twenty four track recording. Yeah. from one half of a decade. Look how fast that all moved. That second half of the sixties, yeah. it was just like boom. It yeah. just blew up. And the Beatles, Beatles changed a lot of that. But that was a decade now uh, to remember. And they say if you yeah. lived in the sixties, then you don't. You shouldn't remember it. Because <laughs> that thing was not only was yeah. music changed, but socially. You had uh, uh, civil rights. You yeah. had uh, uh, women's rights. You had uh, drugs and everything were being uh, experimented yeah, with, you know. Yeah. And uh, what wow, about, what about the Beatles burning re the record? Burning the that happened in, right, right here, here right across here. Georgia. What the most famous picture of the Beatle burning ended up being in Waycross, Georgia. We always got famous for something, didn't and we? It and was, it was behind a, a radio station on Carswell Avenue yes. at the time. It was called WAYX, 1230 got, on your dial. I got to experience it. My first cousin, who was always in the middle of everything, and Johnny Bennett. me in to go, and Johnny Bennett. So we go. We don't have any intention of burning anything because we didn't take nothing with us. I don't think we had an intention of leaving there with anything. But anyway, we're there with a bunch of kids. There's about, a, would say, a couple hundred people out there. And people throwing records in the radio station was burning more than the people were. That was the funny thing. They were burning their records. Uh, we might have grabbed theirs instead of... But anyway, we'll, we'll get the story. We Johnny got on the microphone... And they asked and one him of the a DJs question. DJ says, uh, "What do you think about the Beatles?" And he said, "I think the Beatles stink." And he <laughs> handed it back to the DJ, and he walked straight over to me, and I was right outside the darkness there, outside the campfire. And he said, "Let's grab them two albums and run like hell to Alice's." So <laughs> Alice was his sister, lived down behind the station. So I grabbed something new, and he grabbed Meet the Beatles. They were the American versions of their releases. Mm. And like I've said before, Satchel Page said, never look back, something might be gaining on you. <laughs> we were running like hell through the dog films. <laughs> you know? And the next day, we put on a tribute to the Beatles and played speakers out to her window so the crowd would hear it on the highways out there. Rebellious. You know. Yeah. So, uh, that's awesome. Y'all want to take a short little break? Sure. But that's, uh, you know, it, it's amazing when you think about what happened in this town and then when larry gets pulled into this thing it just it, it, you just got to shake your head mm -hmm. i mean you really got to shake your head this and i wonder if you if we kept backing it up we're gonna find some damn something else you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah. something in my blood starts to take a hold something in my bones start to lose control 
in the water gonna make me see Something in the water gonna set me free What's up? Tell them who you call. Oh, I'm gonna let him know who all y'all are. Well, folks, we're gonna try our first call out. We're gonna see if Larry Murray will pick up the phone. The Larry Murray, the famous songwriter from Waycross, Georgia. I like to move into a voicemail. Hello, Larry. Hey, Billy. I'm on a live podcast in Waycross, Georgia, called "Something in the Water." Hey, Larry. Yeah, you know, I, I heard, I, I read something about that. I didn't understand what it was. Well, Dave Griffin and Sean Clark sitting in here with me, and Justin Mercer, who actually runs the podcast. He's the guy that does the caution light videos, and I told you about. Yeah. We're doing a podcast. I got invited to be the guest tonight, so I've been telling all kinds of stories on me and Dave growing up, and I had to bring you into the story because you're part of the something in the water here, Larry. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, Larry. It's uh, it's uh, Dave Griffin. Uh, um, we wanted to, uh, me and Sean wanted to invite you when next time you're down here in Waycross to come be a guest on the on the podcast yourself. I'll do it. Awesome. <laughs> I'm right. not scared of anything, man. <laughs> so, so we made you guest tonight, anyway, uh, by California way. So, uh. We've been talking about you. I've told a little bit of your history in here. And I thought, you know, I'll just call him and see. So here we are. <laughs> Any, Good enough. Anything you want to say? Uh, is there any, is there any uh, tornadoes out there in California? <laughs> no, they no, said we them. have earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the earth, earthquakes are a little, I, I kind of like them better than tornadoes because earthquakes, by the time it hits and you pick your ass up off the ground, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no time to be scared. <laughs> think, think about a tornado. You see the thing coming and uh, you can uh, mess your pants. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. And then not get blown away and you're, then you're embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been telling them some some of your history here, Larry, from uh, growing up in Waycross, from the living on Cockwood Street and living in the old Marion boarding house. So uh, you'll end up on the podcast anyway. So, well, that's good. Uh, We're talking about how two Waycross boys brought all the California rock sound out yeah. there. Yeah, we actually <laughs> been talking about how you uh, in '61 and Graham shows up in '67 and. Uh, he shoots that way across Georgia into the California music scene there. Well, it's a, it's a kind of always been there. It should be, you know, like I told you before, it should be the new Muscle Shoals. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Somebody y'all... Somebody come down there and build a studio. <laughs> oh, yeah, and way across you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. What, yeah. I, I, that's what I was I telling know. them. Yeah. Uh, you know, you uh, <laughs> if I decide to do another... You know, CD or something like that. I'm going to do it down there. I'm just going to. We'll do it in your store. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, Justin Mercer's got a, a studio set up in his house right here. That's where. Uh, That's where we're in. I'm Box Dwellers recording. We're doing the podcast actually in this uh, building out here. Uh, very, he's very good engineer. Getting some good stuff out now. 
Oh, I'm sure there's, you know, it can be done. You know, I was, uh, when I was back there, you know, for the grant thing, you know, I was knocked out about the, so many musicians. When I grew up back there, you know, like we talked about, you know, there weren't that many musicians except the piano players at church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't know how to play rock and roll, so. No. And and the barbershop quartets. Yeah, that's right. We didn't need any instruments for that. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of musicians down here now, that's for sure. I know. It's amazing. And, and every I tell you, I didn't hear a bad one down there. That's oh, my... Uh, Good songwriters, yeah. Which musician that was in that whole bunch. Yeah. Uh, a lot of good songwriters as well. Good bands, just... It's been here for all these years, but uh, you took it out there, whether you realize it. You took it out to California, and you influenced the California music scene. That's just a simple fact. And uh, Well, that's what they say, Chris and Bernie and I. Yeah. And Herb. There ain't no doubt you did, buddy. I mean, it's, that's a fact. That's not... Well, we, had our, we had our fingers in everything. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But... Uh, Uh, how about that tornado in Nashville? So far, 22 dead. Mm. I know. I know right where it was. It, it went right through. Uh, I have friends that live in that area, you know. Yeah. Uh, Bellmead and east of Na East Nashville. Yeah, right. You know, and uh, it's wiped that place out. I, I text them. I haven't heard back from them. I, I'm sure they're okay. You know. I hope so. Yeah. We yeah. We got kind of the same storm here, but a lot weaker, you know. A lot of rain yeah, here. My, yeah, I called my daughter. I heard about it. My daughter lives up in Clarksville. She, she was north of it, but they had some bad weather there, too. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't have anything here but earthquakes. We need some rain is what we need. Earthquakes and wildfires. Uh, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Wildfire. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, our fire season now is official 360 days a year. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It is. It used to be in the, in the fall when we'd get the Santa Ana winds and everything, but now it's uh, there was a big fire uh, going yesterday up in Riverside. Yeah. You know. Well, I've been but, telling uh, them about the Scottsville squirrel barkers here. Uh, where that all started and where that all went, hearts and flowers. So, you know, it's uh. Well, we'll have plenty to talk about if 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 uh, when you come back down to South Georgia and get you on this podcast, we'll have a lot of questions to ask. Well, I can give you an answer whether they're true or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we like. That's the southern way. <laughs> Sometimes the real answers aren't very interesting. No, so. never get to let the truth get in the way of a good story in the South. Yeah, partly truth and partly fiction, I yeah, say. Yeah, that's right. And that was, what What did you say, uh, that was about Mickey Newberry? Didn't you say Chris wrote that about Mickey? No, I, th I think he was, when Chris came up with that line, I, it was, I think it was uh, in regards to Johnny Cash. I thought you told me that Mickey was always telling lies and he was always calling him out on it. 
in your in your hope. Yeah, but I think that I think that phrase, you know, partly truth and partly fiction. I think he was referring to John. Might have been. You know, yeah. If I if my memory serves me, now Mickey just. Uh, <laughs> Why am I laughing? He's dead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's a funny guy, man. I love that guy. And him and Chris was into it all the time. Chris was always... Chris didn't bust him because he lied, because Mickey came up with these weird stories and everything, and, and Chris would pin him down, and, you know, and he'd say, well, where did you hear that, you know? And Mickey would say, well, I read it. And Chris would fall on the floor laughing and says, oh, you read it. Well, that makes it true, I guess. <laughs> but we used to sit up there in, in, in my room, and I tell you, I wish I could remember some of the stuff that went on up there. It was hilarious. Oh, and not only that, everybody else hung out at the Ramada, and they all ended up in my place. Of course. And, uh, but you had a place. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'd have to, I'd have to leave. They'd stay up so long and get to roaring up there, and I'd, I'd have to sleep in the office. But um, no, no that, was the, that, that was the hangout. No tell how many songs got written because of your Ramada in suite. I don't know. <laughs> no telling. You know that? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard. I hadn't heard any. Any regards regarding that uh, uh, Ramada thing? I read that thing Lynn Ronstadt wrote in her biography where she said that uh, when she showed up there for the Johnny Cash show, she got left, and she found and you found her down in the lobby, and she yeah. said she said you were she was scared because she was left by herself, and you found her down there and took her up to your room, and you had Christopherson and Mickey Newberry and I think Waylon Jennings in the room writing songs. <laughs> She went in. She went in my room, and she looked in there, and there was Chris and Mickey and Waylon. Yeah, (laughs) and she she felt right. She was that was okay. That that cleared everything up. Yeah, but um, I saved her bacon a couple of times. She was going to do the Campbell show, and uh, she was in there in pre-production talking to the director or something you know, and everything. And she was using some pretty foul language. She cussed like a sailor. <laughs> and uh, the, the, they were kind of put out about that. And I told her she should apologize to them and, you know, and everything. And uh, I guess the next day she did. And <laughs> the director said, uh, uh, Linda came in and says, I want to apologize for using all those uh, uh, you know, bad words and everything, I, you know, and everything. And they said, oh, that was okay, you know. And she says, oh, I, sure, I, I, I knew I'd fucked up when I started. She was something else, man. She was a, she was a, well, and a sweet girl. She said, didn't she say, she sang better without underwear on those, what she told Johnny Cash, wasn't it? I don't know. No, June June didn't like that, man. June was really upset when she, you know, found out Linda didn't wear any underwear. <laughs> she went and bought her some. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Supposedly, that's what Linda said in her biography. June went and bought her some and made her put it on before she did the Johnny Cash show. <laughs> wow. 
and, and I, I think I think she passed Johnny in the hallway, and Johnny asked her, uh, "How does she like her new drawers?" And she said, "I like them, but I, I think I can sing better bare assed." <laughs> really? That's in I her biography, so I don't know. Well, that's about something. Like that that's what she would say, probably. Well, buddy, we we appreciate you uh, hollering at us. I I think we're gonna uh, let you go now because I'm afraid that if we keep on talking about, we won't have anything to talk about when you do get down here. <laughs> we keep running these stories come, out there. Billy Ray and I'll come up with something. Yeah, I know you will, <laughs> well, whether it's true or not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll All see right. you, Larry. Good talk to you. All right. Bye bye. Well, uh, we hope that you enjoyed that little. Uh, Little audio segment there, a phone call with uh, the legendary Larry Murray, or original Waycross, Georgia boy, who made it big out in California and, and uh, influenced uh, a lot of your favorite musicians along the way. <clears throat> well, folks, what do we got? Do you want to, uh, how are we sitting on time? She play that Dog Hill song. He's gonna play. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. This is uh. Hey. Nah, I'm good. If I can remember the words, um, this song talking about uh, a place that uh, Billy Ray and I grew up in Waycross called Dog Hill. called The Ballad of Dog Hill. <laughs> oh, 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 Talking about the future, the present and the past Talking about cars like capitalistic boxes Never all dreaming of the need for speed Never dreaming of the need for speed Slick Tick and Sharky Slick Tick and Sharky were playing in the field Where the bulls run wild with their hooves of steel Black eyes, barbed wire, and broken bones Waiting on an angel for to call him home Waiting for to call him home They was all raised up in a good part of town Had a comfortable life when the sun went down Living high at the top of Dog Hill Watching the world turn and doing what they will Watching and doing what they weave Slick Dick and Sharky and Birdleg Ray Went to the devil's house one day Fire and brimstone was burning all around When the last saw Satan, he was leaving town Oh, Satan, he was leaving town Slick is in hot Atlanta, 
talking on the phone. Dickens in old England, just trying to get home. Sharky's on Dog Hill and asked for bird leg ray. He got drafted in the army and he's calling home to May. He drafted and he's calling home to May. They was all raised up in a good part of town. Had a comfortable life when the sun went down. Living high at the top of Dog Hill. Watching the world turn and doing what they will. Just watching and doing what they will. Oh, 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 oh. That's a good one. You bird leg Ray? Bird well, legs Ray. That's what I got called uh, a few times. <laughs> uh, I actually got called. Because you had bird legs? Well, one time I got called a great white heron because Mama bleached my baseball suit out. <laughs> trying, to get, trying to get all the clay out of it. And so I'm on the, standing out in the field. Everybody else has got. You were standing kind of half out. Of, they got, got these field, these red suits kind of feathered red i got white <laughs> so I'm, they start calling me the great white hair <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we both uh you and i well when i was living on dog hill which uh we was in the service so we moved around a good bit y'all stayed put yep. uh, we'd always come back for half a year or a whole year yeah. or until daddy retired and we moved back for good. But times we were here, uh, you and I went to the same elementary school. Right. Memorial Drive Wildcats. The Memorial Drive. <laughs> That's where I went. Wildcats. We yeah. Yeah. We got a little alumni group here. That's right. Yeah. Wildcats. Wildcats. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. Every was, Saturdays, we all went to the matinees downtown, the Ritz oh and the God, Leary. That was good. good uh, quarter to get in, you could stay all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Larry remembers that, going to the Lyric. Yeah. So it was going on at the same time. Parents could leave you all day. It was like a babysitting. Yeah. They'd drop you off. <laughs> quarter. Give you, yeah, they'd give you a dollar. You got in for a quarter, and you could eat all the candy and popcorn you wanted for 75 cents, you know. And watch John Wayne and Tarzan movies over and over because they'd repeat them. You know? It would be like uh, uh, when you sit down in your seats, it, it, the camera would come on and it'd be like the first thing you saw was a serial, which is a continuing saga, you know, from weekend to weekend, you know. <laughs> and uh, then uh, they'd have some local advertisements up there on the big screen. You'd see all these local people with yeah. the... Hearts Jewelers and, uh, and different businesses around town, and then they'd play Woody Peck, some Woody, Woody, cartoons, Woody Woodpecker, a few cartoons, and then the first feature would come on. And after the first feature was over, there'd be more cartoons and yep. more advertisements. And then the double feature, second feature would come <laughs> on, and it was like an all-day thing. And the funny thing was the kids were being little factions, 
Like you'd have the quiet kids and have the kids that were kind of in between quiet, and you'd have the mean ass kids in the balcony <laughs> throwing shit at you. You remember? Yeah. <laughs> we were. Uh, I was always sitting with the good kids. I, I tried to just disappear. I didn't want any problems from either one of them. You know. Well, we always traveled in packs. I mean, we did. Uh, yeah. Me and uh, Gary and James and yeah, and me and all my cousins. Yeah. You know, we'd go some Saturdays. And, just but our lay, whole laid life, back time. our life was really on that road. You, you didn't leave that road m much. I mean, you spent your whole life on that road, and it was James's house mostly. Yeah, this fellow we call it, uh, talking about James Cock lived yeah. right next door to right. me, and uh, he he lived with his mother and his grandparents. That was his grandparents' house, and. Uh, it was a beautiful old house. I ended up buying the house in the 90s yeah. and living in it for a few short years. And uh, there was a beautiful, uh, a lot of wood in the house. And uh, French doors opened up into this, what they called the little back porch. Right. It yeah. was a, a long back porch. Yeah. It was originally, it was the well, back porch. And then in. they closed it in <clears throat> and it became James's bedroom. Yeah which became our hangout, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's where we listened to... Uh, they added a bedroom to the back of it. Yeah, they added a bedroom for Wayne back there. You know who built that house? My daddy's brother, Harry. Oh, okay. The original middle, original part was built by Harry. He Harry. probably built a lot of them houses on that road. Yeah, he built all the way down to the end. The last one he built was Peterson's house. Yeah. But uh, in James's... On uh, and of course we called it the little back porch too, but it was James's bedroom. Yeah, and uh, that's where we listened to the Beatles. Because you had your own outdoor. Uh huh. You could walk in and out. Yeah, of the he bedroom. had a he had a, a screen door that exited right into the backyard. That's right. Yeah. So we'd lay on that back porch and wood floors on that back porch, just listen to Meet the Beatles, <laughs> their first album on the little tiny yeah. portable stereo. Yes, sir. And 45s, old 45s. Yeah. You remember uh, Meet Me at Midnight Mary? I remember that. And Moody River, Pat Boone. And, I, and one of my favorite ones he had I always loved was California Girls by the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah. That was my favorite one he had put on, you know. And then we'd run out in the yard and play barefoot until Mama would call us in for supper. Yeah, and, we would. It was all day long in the summer, and then always on the weekends. We were we and got to the point other neighborhoods would come challenge us. Yeah, when we got older, games. we'd have those football games in the pasture back there. Yeah, and nobody and, uh, left victorious when they challenged us because we had all the angles figured out out on the field. We had the two big guys, and and James had, and Greg. Yeah, and we had the the these guys called the Birch Brothers that were all weightlifters. Later, had their own weightlifting uh, store. They, had a, and all. they opened up a gym. And they showed up. They showed up. They, they showed up to show us what other part of town could do. They don't want to talk about it today. <laughs> they came and played in brogan boots. That's oh, how they wow. didn't take them off. They played in brogan boots, and we're out there, you know. Uh, Taking it to them. You know. We had all the angles down to the point. We knew exactly if James threw it or whoever quarterback, and he was going. Somebody was going to be there to catch it. We had all those angles, you know. <laughs> we just beat the hell out of them, <laughs> and they don't remember it today for some reason. <laughs> yes. 
special. I still got hard feelings about it. Well, a lot of people, including ourselves, left with injuries. Yeah, That's I got what a broke I'm about in the phone. I mean, in the song, and they got <laughs> in the song, uh, uh, black eyes and uh, <laughs> broken bones and stuff. There was a lot of that went on back there. There's a bat, a twist of a bat, that Dave's life would be different today. It would be. Gary hit the ball and the and bat broke. I was broke. kneeling in the on deck circle. And the bat started with circling. With a big smile on my face. And Gary hit <laughs> the thing and tossed that bat. The bat wasn't even a bat. It, it broke. had already broken. There was no knob on the end, so it was just a jagged stob, stob there. <laughs> and then the, the head of the bat was up here. And he <coughs> slugged the ball and pitched the bat backwards, and it went spiraling round and round and round right at me. And the big end hit me right in the eye right there. Oh, if it had wow. been the, Other the end. jagged end, <laughs> you I'd have been Dr. Hook. One eye day. Yeah. Weren't you also the one that we were throwing the golf balls up in the tree that come down and hit you in the eye? I don't remember that accident, but I caught a lot of head injuries throughout my childhood. <laughs> it's probably made me Or baseball. We were throwing something up in the trees. And it was coming on hitting limbs, don't you remember? I don't remember that. It hit you in the head, it seemed like. No, I remember getting thumbed in the eye on a tackle. <laughs> I remember that, too. Yeah. yeah. Somebody got hit in the eye from and the ball. And you got a collarbone. Yeah, Greg broke my collarbone yeah. and had to take me to the hospital. And uh, Dr. Bickerstaff set me drunk. Yeah. It was on a Sunday, and he come off the golf course drunk yeah. and set my collarbone drunk. And he didn't feel a thing. No. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> but, golly, that was something else. That was our whole life every day. Yeah. You, you didn't really venture out much. Pick and Save got built in 65. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was the first store to leave the city of Waycross. Yeah. And everybody started shopping there. Before yeah, that, you went was, downtown. Only. It was the, really the first superstore. Yeah. Preceded Walmart's and mm -hmm. all the retail. Like Everything was there. I mean, it well, was. Before that, all the retail was in the city. Mm -hmm. You went under the underpass and ended up in the city for Cresses and McCrory's and stuff. Yeah. That's the first one that changed the course of retail <coughs> history for us. Mm -hmm. Pick and Save had uh, record albums, jewelry department, yeah. uh, restaurant, pharmacy. Everything, uh, yeah. Everything. What kind, of, what kind of musical performances were in the Waycross back in the day? Well, there were venues around, uh, and, well, the and a teen lot of dances. country bands, and and oh yeah, the jo teen dance. Johnny B. Moss has put on the B Baby Hops back then. They were quite well known, and he brought acts in from all over the southeast in Florida and Georgia. And a lot of those acts ended up being major artists later, you know, in mm -hmm. different bands. And, the uh, Candyman. Yeah, and he booked a lot of them, and uh. This is all <laughs> Huh? Is this all the city auditorium? Or? Yeah, city auditorium, National Guard Armory, and, and that little American Legion building over by the uh, Atlantic Coast Bank, Maris Bank now, and then the rec department had some. And that's the four I remember the most. A lot of and he also brought in played. some major acts. He brought in the Shower of the Stars in 65 that had Gary Lewis Playboys, Dale Shannon, I was at that Booker one. T and yeah. the MGs, Hullabaloo's, Bobby Goldsboro, and that's the one the Rolling Stones were supposed to be the headline act, but something happened with Keith Richards on a bust or something, and they, and they had to change him to Gary Lewis and Playboys. Yeah. 
Uh, supposed to come to Waycross? Yeah, and it turned out Gary Lewis Playboy's first live concert was at that con that contest. At Memorial Stadium? Yeah, that was his first live concert <clears throat> with the Playboys. <clears throat> and then the next year, Johnny B, on his farewell show, brought the Where the Action is show with the Young Rascals as headliners and had the Knickenbockers and Billy Joe Royal and, and uh, B.J. Thomas and uh, Keith Allison and Where the Action is Dancers, the one that danced on TV. And that was his farewell show. He was moving to Atlanta. He was like a local radio personality yeah. on WACL. Yeah. Uh, and him and Judy Seymour were booking things together. Uh -huh. Judy ended up moving to Jacksonville in 66 mm -hmm. and marrying Ronnie Van Zant. Mm-hmm. She, she was a Waycross Yeah, girl. now she's Judy Van Zant, of course. Right. And uh, that was that was that 60s period. Mm. You know, and... But it, even after Johnny B, there were dances every weekend. You had a dance to go to a, a little city auditorium, National Garden Armory, or Jenkins Street, they called it, or the mm -hmm. rec department. I mean, there'd be more than one every weekend. What what year did uh, the 95 come through, and, and how, did that change what? things? What's that? 95. I-95. Uh, I-95 come through. Oh, that was, it used to be US late 60s, was probably. The way that was how you traveled north in yeah. Florida, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely affected uh, US-1 was the main artery yeah. right, right prior across. to that, you know, and all these little beautiful little motels. And mm -hmm. You know, Neil Young's biography he wrote here just in recent years, he mentioned uh, in there when he was a child, every year his daddy would take him family to Florida, mm -hmm. and they would travel US-1. And he said one of his greatest memories is the small South Georgia towns he went through. Mm -hmm. You reckon he ever this ate at the of, Green Frog? Sure, that's where he got a high tone at. <laughs> I'll take some frog eggs. <laughs> frog legs, I mean. <laughs> well, uh, I reckon it's time for uh, a story from uh, Uncle Dave Tales of the Week from Dog Hill to Tripoli and back. And uh, this one is very relevant to our guest tonight. Okay. Uh, it's called uh, Uncle Vance Named It Dog Hill. There we go. <clears throat> the house I grew up on was it cut. All right. You can edit that out. The house I grew up in was on a dirt road. In the early years, it was sandy enough that I bogged down learning how to ride that old blue Schwinn bicycle from Western Auto. So I would heave it off the ground and push it back up the small hill until I was home. That home on Mount Pleasant Road was as sweet a solace of cinder block shelter and solitude as I've ever felt. Surrounded by family and friends, our neighborhood was idyllic. Mama, a military bride, and young mother bought the house when Daddy was stationed overseas in the early 50s. She took great comfort in knowing her older sister's family lived just next door. The Air Force took us to Tripoli, Libya, Albany, Georgia, and Tampa, Florida, but our home was always in Waycross. In 1966, Daddy retired from the service, and we moved back to Mount Pleasant Road for good. 
Following the death of Mama's daddy, we set up a mobile home in our backyard for Grandma Carter and my Uncle Vance. Poor old Vance didn't sleep well in his new environs, serenaded by the nightly howling, yapping, and barking of the second most populous community on Mount Pleasant Road, the dogs. In a state of insomniac unrest, Vance proclaimed his new address, Dog Hill. Boy, the times we had growing up on Dog Hill, me and my older brother Gary, neighbors James Cock, Greg Griffin, and Billy Ray Heron were the original Dog Hill gang. James Cock lived right next door with his mama, a former Army nurse, and her parents, Big Granny and Little Granny Lots. Their yard was a spacious haven for us young'uns. In the 50s, they had owned a bull that was kept in the deepest part of the backyard that they called the pasture. By the 60s, the bull was history, and the pasture was ours. We bled and died in that pasture on Saturdays, playing football, baseball, and soccer. Soccer, Black eyes, broken bones, and barbed wire lacerations were our normal rites of passage. When we were young, we sought refuge in James's bedroom, a long, rambling room, the width of the house, with a pine wood ceiling, floor, and walls. We'd sprawl out on that floor, listening to 45 RPM records. Moody River by Pat Boone, Joey Powers, Midnight Mary, and the first Beatles album on Capitol, Meet the Beatles. As we grew, so did our interests, and it was once again James's bedroom where I got my first taste of beer, puffed on my first cigarette, and smoked my first joint. That's just what you did in the 60s and 70s. And soon the nicknames came. Brother Gary was Tick, so named for crawling the inside walls and windows of a school bus in college. Greg Griffin was Slick, so named for his consummate attention to fashion and grooming. James Cock was Sharky, so named because of his no-holes-barred competitiveness in anything we did. Billy Ray Heron was Bird Legs Ray, so named because his legs were so skinny it looked like he was riding a chicken. <laughs> Me, I was Lonesome Dave because, well, I guess because I was the youngest of the Dog Hill gang, and the older guys didn't include me in all of their devious departures until I came of age. High school graduations came and went, and soon enough, we all had to start making life choices. Tick was the oldest and drew a low draft number. He joined the Air Force, managed to avoid Vietnam, and was stationed in Cornwall, England. Slick got hired by Southern Bell and moved off to Atlanta in a brown Ford Pinto. Sharky, Birdlegs Ray, and I gave a good college try towards a higher education and failed. We all got married, some of us time and time again, and fathered a whole new generation of dog healers. Over the years, though, we never lost touch and have had each other's back through trials and triumphs. This band of brothers loved, laughed, won, lost, struggled, and shared the innocence and beauty of a childhood on Dog Hill that bound us together for life. There's no saying you can't choose your family. I'm glad I didn't have a choice. My Dog Hill friends were 
and always will be my family. That's good. That's <laughs> good story there. Very good. Appreciate you coming <coughs> by and, and, and being our guest tonight. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good man. times. I love it. Folks, we thank you for joining us again. Uh, we hope that you'll uh, like us and subscribe to us. and Rate and review. Rate and review. Right. And uh, we'll see you next time. When the cold black water finds its way across through your veins, it just might seal your fate. It just might seal your fate. It just might. Hey.